see what happens. I started off with the title Vedana Ethics and Character, and as I was writing this paper, I decided this was more a prolegomena to that discussion, discussion rather than an actual definitive kind of dealing with that whole issue, which I think is actually a, a much wider, much bigger issue. So let me start with the paper. I'm going to start with a quotation, which is a quotation not from any Buddhist source, but from Aristotle. What affirmation and negation are in thinking, pursuit and avoidance are in desire. The more one investigates the teachings of the early texts of the Pali Canon, the more one begins to discern the ethical and social nature of the Buddha's teaching. It's this concern which, with the nature of ethical behavior that distinguishes the Buddha from being a psychologist, a philosopher, or even, from my point of view, a truly religious thinker. However, if we think of ethics as being, as it often is in Western ethical systems, about a normative set of rules that we are meant to adhere to, then this is very far from the Buddha's investigation of the nature of the ethical. His is primarily an inquiry into the wellsprings of ethical or unethical behavior, namely the psychological. He therefore begins to investigate in substantial detail the conditions of such behaviors, and we are thus led ineluctably into models that we may term maps of human functioning. It's these maps that we are meant to, that are meant to provide a degree of clarity and perspicuity to the process whereby human beings become entrapped within repetitive cycles of distress and additionally also provide practical clues as how to this process can be reversed how one can be liberated from being continuously propelled into the unethical. I think this is actually a key, for me, a key issue, is actually the notion of the ethical and the unethical and what the Buddha is actually doing in these early texts. And I think it really devolves a lot on, on this particular topic. Primary patterns of distress, dukkha, and reactivity are viewed as the causal origins of behavior that are themselves reactive manifestations built on acknowledged or unacknowledged existential distress, leading often to the reinforcement of the originary patterns in a circular manner. The foregoing is quite obviously a restatement, a restatement in some way of the four ennobling truths with particular reference uh, to Samudaya, the origin of Dukkha. However, rather than tanha being conceived of as a cause or origin of dukkha, I think it is now being seen as a reaction to the existential inescapability of dukkha. That is, desire or craving is generated as an attempt to deal with the pain of existence, one that almost inevitably fails to deliver what is promised by the behaviors linked to this strategy. In the most detailed and well-known map or explication of this process, Pitatitya Samuppada formula of the Buddha, Vedana or hedonic tone, that's the, I'm going to wax and wane between hedonic tone and feeling tone in this particular paper. Uh, hedonic tone, I think because of the pleasure pain element, I think is a useful translation of this. Um, the day of Vedana or hedonic tone is a link, Nidana, that is crucially seen to precede the arising of desire, craving and attachment. In another exploration, Vedana is seen as an element in the cognitive chain. Mahakachana uh, explores the elements of the cognitive process in response to a terse teaching offered by the Buddha in the Madhupindaka Sutta. In this discourse, the Vedana is placed as a component of the cognitive chain that is seen to pave the way for perception, discernment, and thinking. It is worth noting that the sequences laid out in the Madhupindaka remained ethically neutral until the emergence of what is conceived of as perception or recognition. However, perception and recognition is seen to occur from the standpoint of an eye that is making judgments as to what is or what is not good for it. So what is Vedana? Well, firstly, I don't think we can isolate Vedana from its consequences, its effects on character, social and individual mores. In fact, frequently, the Vedana is only detectable by the consequences that it has in terms of behavior. What, would we, what we would refer to metaphorically as its footprints in the sand. In many instances, it appears uncertain whether we have access to unmediated Vedana in ordinary experience. 
we often know that hedonic tones have been present by the kinds of behavior we see enacted, both in our own behavior and in the behavior of others. If someone clutches their stomach and groans, we can be fairly certain that there's unpleasant hedonic tone there. This is also true of the consequences of the factors that are said to arise subsequent to contact, par contact, pasa, and vedana being present, namely tanha, upadana, and bhava. These all have social and individual ethical outcomes. On the individual level, this can result in deeply embedded reactive patterns that are responsible for and implicated in character formation. If, as Aristotle in his virtue ethics claimed, virtue was a skill and the enactment of that skill gave rise to a character endowed with virtue, then we may not call it a skill, but re repetitive reactive patterns also give rise to and form character albeit not one necessarily replete with virtue. Vedan refers to that which occurs when external stimuli enter the tactile range of one of the six senses, eyes, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. All feelings, stroke hedonic tones, both physical and mental, are included in this group. The Buddha throughout numerous discourses in the Pali Canon stresses the sensory basis of knowledge. In every instance, the mind is included as a sensory organ. Applying his genealogical method, Paticca Samupada, the Buddha traces the genesis of consciousness to sensuous touch, to pasa. Contact or touch is conceived as a mutual friction or co-touching of two impulses, one originating from within the individual and the other emanating from an external source. It could be argued, however, that the whole notion of external and internal in the naively realistic sense is put under question by the Buddha's analysis. This dichotomization can be seen to be illusory in that all sensory impingement takes place at the surface of the body, the skin, both literal and metaphorical. However, the body is not just a bundle of organs enclosed in a sack of skin. Skin can be taken as a word for the imaginary threshold between the five external faculties, eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch, and the mind. Without this touching or being touched, as I'll explore later on, there is no Vedana, feeling tone, and more categorically, no consciousness from the Buddhist perspective. The sensuous basis of consciousness is emphasized in the formula the sixth sense bases condition contact, contact conditions feelings. Each sense makes a different contact or is touched in a different way and produces a different impression and consciousness. A blind person, for example, other than metaphorically, does not feel light and therefore has no visual consciousness. At best, they could be helped to conceptualize the color red by linking it to the other senses. This can be seen as a reversal of the early Upanishadic doctrine that consciousness feels. It's not consciousness that feels from the Buddhist perspective, but consciousness originates in feeling. Vedana is conjoined and intimately connected to Sanya, what is usually translated as perception, but has much more of a sense of recognition. And, experience, and in experience, it would be extremely hard to discern the difference between the two. It is only in Buddhist analytic methodology that it's possible to distinguish between them. Nevertheless, Vedana is generally classified as being of three types. I think we all know this, pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And quotation, it feels because, therefore, it's called feeling. What does it feel? It feels pleasure and that which is neither pleasure nor pain. The distinction is expanded to make it fivefold by distinguishing between bodily and mental Vedana. Mental Vedanas are pleasant, unpleasant, and neither in the same way as the physical, with the neither being extremely close, if not wholly associated with indifference. The Atasalani of Buddhaghosa, uh, which is a commentary on the first book of the Abhidharma, uh, defines Vedana as follows. Feeling is that which feels. It has feeling as a characteristic, either experiencing or the enjoyment of something desired as function. The relishing of mental states of manifestation and calmness as approximate cause. 
Vedana within early Buddhism is considered to be a basic psychological process whose function cannot be reduced to any other psychic operations. In the Abhidhamma, Vedana is seen to be one of the seven universal factors, Chitasaka, at the base of all psychological functioning and present in every moment of experience. With Vedana being described in the following way in an extremely influential 12th century Sinhalese authored commentary on Abhidhamma material. And this quote, feeling is what feels, experiences the taste of the object. It has the characteristic of feeling. Though the other associated Dhammas experience the taste of the object, they experience it only partially, because, but because of its supremacy, feeling experiences it fully. This indeed is said to be like a king enjoying the taste of good food. Thus, Vedana can be considered as the basic concept for our affective experience, the taste of that experience driving sensuous greed and stimulating the appetite for attachment. On the other hand, painful feelings ignite latent anger and hatred. It is said that one who wishes to overcome the repetitive behaviors associated with samsara has to eliminate three features connected with these feeling tones. The tendency to compulsive attachment to pleasant feeling, the propensity to, to revulsion in painful feelings, and the inclination to ignorance in indifferent feeling tones. As a universal in the Abhidhamma schema, Vedana, similar to the way it is seen in the, in the Madhupindaka, appears to have no ethical connotations. Nevertheless, it could be argued that the description and analysis of Vedana outlined above, whilst it is in itself ethically neutral, has profound ethical connotations and, more importantly, consequences of an ethical nature. Herbert Gunther, in one of his seminal work, early works on the Abhidharma, brings this element to the fore in his description of Vedana. He describes it in the following way. Vedana is a basic psychological function which imparts to every conscious content a definite value in the sense of acceptance, like or rejection, dislike or indifference. Thus feeling is a kind of judging, although it does not establish an intellectual connection, but merely sets up a subjective criterion of acceptance, rejection and indifference. Vedana then clearly has an evaluative function that is responsible for motivating behavior in the manner suggested by Aristotle in the quotation I cited at the beginning of this paper. Any effective valuation is both pre-conceptual and pre-cognitive, with the cognitive function of the psyche being designated by sanya. Nevertheless, the question arises as to whether there could be pleasurable states devoid of attachment, and it appears that feeling tone stroke hedonic tone associated with the aggregates of attachment cannot be severed from egoistic projections. Feeling tones arise in relationship to the sensory stimulation of touch and the cognitive and conceptual activities of the mind. However, before, before pursuing this any further, let us move back to the step in the sequence that is prior to Vedana. Pasa, contact or touch. I actually prefer touch. This is seen to be an element implicated in the birth of consciousness, of all consciousness experience, of conscious experience. Literally without pasa, there cannot, from this perspective, be a world. And I think uh, the world, the translation of the word loka, is, which is usually translated in, as world, does not mean the objective world, but the world of experience. Sanya is identified as the moment when external and internal impulses, forms, colors, smells, tastes, touches, and percepts, are coordinated and assembled by the mind. Sanya is a compound word meaning co-knowledge. A form is recognized, identified, and named as a specific object. And here's another quotation from the text I quoted earlier on. Recognition is what recognizes the object as blue, etc. Having given the label, it knows. It has the characteristic of recognizing, like the marking of a piece of wood by a carpenter. In the act of perception, the senses filter, refract, or bend reality. It is this refracted and reflected reality that the mind conceptualizes. To describe this process of refraction, Buddhaghosa coined the philosophical neologism, namana, 
by associating nama with the verb namati, to bend. The mind conceives reality on the basis of a refracted or bent reality. It then reflects on it, producing views based on virtual realities or images distorted by the mirror of the mind. For the Buddha, even arguments resting heavily on the laws of logic are speculations, ditti, in the literal sense of the term. With recognition, conceptualization, and designation, two rupas, forms, come into being, the thing out there and the mental image or concept. This latter, the form conceived by the mind, the concept can be held and reflected upon by the mind, fixing it with a verbal sign, sanya or nimitta. Signs, however, are not limited to phonemes alone. All mental representations are signs. They are imaginative constructs which serve as metaphors for an experience of a reality. As we shall, as we shall investigate later on, conceptual proliferations, fantasies and ratiocinations, begin inside the head only when things are marked, fixed and signed. Simplification and fixed identities can be rebirthed by the remarking and recognizing. It is Vedan which provides the raw material for much of this process to occur. The Buddha is probably the first thinker known to history who provided a this-worldly genetic explanation of consciousness based on a form of introspective psychological understanding. Perhaps the most succinct and clearest explanation of the physiological sensuous origins of consciousness is to be found in a text I've already referred to, the Madhupindaka Sutta. The Buddha himself gave the title Honeyball, which is actually the translation of Madhupindaka, to this discourse because it ultimately exposes the relationship between violence and metaphysical views, a profoundly ethical reflection. Life, in other words, if understood properly, would be as sweet as honey if we could only grasp the deep truth. This text is notably a discourse around a discourse, and it begins with a brief talk by the Buddha outlining the relationship between ego craving, clinging to views, and violence in society. When people give up their obsessive clinging to views, this implies, in this text, all views, including destructive self-views, the Buddha concluded, there is nothing to rejoice at, to welcome, to catch hold of. This is in itself an ending of a propensity to views. This is in itself an ending to a propensity to perplexity. This is in itself an ending to the propensity to attachment, to becoming. This is an ending to the propensity to ignorance. This is in itself an ending to the propensity to taking the rod, of taking a weapon, of quarrelling, contending, disputing, accusation, and lying speech." End of quote. The Buddha then retired and left the bhikkhus to reflect on what he had said. They were perplexed by this connection that he had made between violence and views. What is the relationship between an eagerness to have a correct and definitive view about the world and violence? The Buddha in his short discourse at the beginning of the text is clearly pointing up a profound and insightful connection between his teaching and the ethical. Let us now turn once more to the Madhupindaka and examine the elucidation that Mahakachana offers on the Buddha's words. Mahakachana does not embark on an abstruse and abstract dissertation. He begins by taking the bhikkhus back to basics the genesis of consciousness in sensuous activity. For consciousness to arise, be born, a person must be endowed with six sense faculties, all of the normal ones plus the mind. Secondly, stimulus arrays appropriate to each faculty must be present. Thirdly, the stimuli and the sensory organ must come into contact with each other, touch each other, for example, if the eyes are healthy and they come into contact with op optical stimuli, visual consciousness arises. None of these three necessary factors, organ, stimulus, contact, are by themselves sufficient causes of consciousness. They are necessary but not sufficient conditions. Consciousness is said to co-arise only when there is a concurrence of all three. 
if for whatever reason any of these factors are absent, there is no consciousness. This principle applies to all the six senses. It must be emphasized that Makachana makes no exception for the mind. In quotation, quote for him from this, when there is a mental object, then there is mental consciousness. One will recognize a manifestation of sensory impingement. Different types of sensory impingement produce different forms of consciousness. Contact between the eye and visual objects and gender visual consciousness. This is true for the other senses as well. The mind is an interesting case in that the contact between the mind and mental object, concepts, hallucinations, mystical visions, daydreams, hopes, wishes, engenders mental consciousness. Mahakachana goes on to describe the cognitive process as beginning with sensory impingement, and the dynamics are described with a clinical precision that eschews any moralistic overtones. Quote, eight, quote, dependent on the eye and form, there is visual consciousness. Touch conjoins these three. Conditioned by touch, hedonic tone arises, and the same formula is repeated for all the other senses. Notice the formulation here, conditioned by there is. What conjugates? Sangati, the three factors and fertilizers is pasa, touch or contact. Contact happens, it is event, because actuality itself is event, process and flux. If there were no movement and no life activity, if reality was static, mutual contact would be impossible. Sensation happens as long as the sense organs are healthy and in a state of receptiveness. This, it might be noted, is not a speculative view. It's an everyday occurrence. We can view it all the time. The initial stage of the process of cognition is stated in impersonal terms to underscore this event nature of sensation. Pasta can be seen as a diagnostic category, which has a wider significance than the common sense understanding of touching. All the senses are seen as tactile. Seeing is touching, hearing is touching, smelling is touching, tasting is touching, and thinking is touching. They are as much a tactile activity as touching with the hand. To put this another way, our senses palpate the world and the world of our mental life. A verse in the Sanyutanikaya draws attention to the ignored primacy of touching. Who touches not is not touched touching, he is touched. This seemingly enigmatic statement bears on the dual aspect of consciousness. Consciousness is co-touching. The feeling and the felt are conditioned, conditioning factors. This is expressed in a terse formulation. Touched by touch, the toucher. Touched by touch, sorry. The toucher is not an autonomous subject touching a passive object out there or a transcendental idea in the head. The toucher is touched in the very act of touching. The subject is constituted by that act. Conditioned by contact, there is feeling, so the Buddha says. The initial stage is described as an impersonal happening, a there is. Mahakachana Kachana then changes from the impersonal to the personal mode to demarcate a qualitative shift in the presence of cognition, in the process of cognition. What one feels, one perceives. When contact is felt, the attention of the mind is alerted and the transition is made to the subjective mode, what we would call perception. The Buddha used a precise term, patigar sampasa, to underscore the specific nature of contact. The matrix of consciousness is mutual touching, sampasa, or co-touching not one-sided touching as we commonly understand it. It is also patiga, striking against friction or contra-rubbing, the impulses and energies flowing from the senses, sensors, and from another source rub each other. It's this friction of counterflows which produces sensation and gives birth to the perception of a form. A form does not pre-exist this act of perception. The proposition that subjects and objects exist prior to the act of perception is, according to this view, a falsification of the factual and, more importantly, the phenomenological situation. Without the friction produced by counterflows, nothing could be sensed. 
through fiction, friction, a form is sensed and cognized. Touching unites, producing feeling, and is the genetic moment of consciousness. The touch of the other can be experienced either as co-naturality of the senses, with a form they perceive, or, importantly, as a sense of alterity, otherness. Feeling or hedonic tone arises because there is frictional co-touching, which can be experienced as sympathetic co-vibration. This experience is conveyed, I think, by the term anukampa, what's usually translated as compassion, but literally vibrating along with. However, this sense of resonating harmoniously is generally not experienced. The development of ego consciousness, a term obviously not used in early Buddhism, coincides with awareness of the difference or the otherness of the other. The attention is fixed on the sense of difference evoked by touching and is conceptualized as a difference between two things, an I-ness and otherness. The growing child, for example, becomes ignorant, ignorance of the touch that unites and splits experience up into differences of this and that, I and you. It falls into the delusion that these perceived differences are substantial differences, separate things which existed before they collided with each other. Consciousness which was produced through contact between a sense organ and its co-natural objects imagines that it is and will forever be an autonomous reality. It ignores the continuous touching and being touch, which gave rise to the sense of difference in the first place. We now come to a section which I entitled The Prolific Tendency of the Mind. Mahakachana does not end his exposition with sensation and perception. This is the genetic stage of subjectification. What one feels, one perceives. The illusion of duality and substantiality which arose through touch, feeling tone and perception. Sanya is consolidated at the conceptual and the linguistic level. Sanya is not and can never be a bare perception or a pure feeling. It is a signing. Here, words, phonemes, sound symbols come into play. The mind now has the building block to construct its mental homes. What one perceives, one reasons or thinks about. Vitaka is used invariably with vichara for deliberative activity taking place in the mind as distinguished from the direct awareness of forms unmediated by concepts and names. Vitaka Vichara is the fixing of the mind on mind objects, reflecting on them, investigating them, reasoning about them. Vitaka is a compound word made up of V, a differentiation, with taka turning and twisting about. Vitaka and Vichara denote a turning back and forth, a to and fro movement, a shuttling and oscillation in the mind of thoughts through the mediation of word signs. The first is described as logical or dialectical thought, and the latter as discursive thought. Thought systems are elaborated by investigating the correspondence or contradictions between concepts. The mind literally becomes a prolific organ. In quotation again from Madhupindaka, what one ponders, one proliferates. Due to that, concepts characterized by the prolific tendency assail him with regard to forms cognizable by the eye belonging to the past, the future, and the present. In a concise formulation, Papancha Sanya Sanka, Samudha Charanti, Mahakachana exposes the move that the mind makes to the metaphysical using language as a springboard. Papancha from pra and punch means to spread out, expansion, diffuseness, manifoldness. In its verbal form, it means to proliferate or to have illusions, to imagine and fantasize and to be obsessive. Thus, Papancha could be rendered as conceptual proliferation, as it usually is. This, together with the word Charanti, connotes the absurgence of concepts in the mind. So the phrase that I used earlier on, Papancha Sanya Sankha Charanti, describes the proliferation of signed concepts surging up together and circulating the head in the seemingly autonomous realm of thought. Samudha Charanti graphically expresses the dizzying whirlpools of thought swirling inside the head with the ego at its vortex. 
This produces the illusion of a permanent and abiding self, viewing and reviewing an endless cavalcade of mental and physical objects passing before it. The reflexive self conceives the conceit that it's an unchanging presence of self to self amidst change and that self is generally associated with a range of behaviours that are said to constitute it. To this extent, I think this is interesting, Buddhism and um, something which is much maligned these days, behaviourism, can be seen to concur on the nature of the self. For both the self is considered merely a nominal substitute for behaviour, you know, action, karma, derived through pleasure, pain, conditioning. However, they divide, diverge significantly on the importance of non-apparent behaviour, or the unconscious processes, sankhara, that underpin and actually operate the conditioning. Behaviourism is content to claim that a pleasurable stimulus, when sufficiently reinforced or repeated, produces a behavioural action. Early Buddhism and later forms, for that matter, hold that not only must unconscious motivations be reducible to empirical conditioning, but that empirical conditioning is only efficacious because of latent, previously embodied conditioning, and that these latencies are therefore more radically significant since they are temporally, logically, and psychologically prior to any single observable occurrence of that conditioned behaviour. This trajectory is particularly observable in Abhidhamma thought, which is concerned to a large extent with the analysis and description of conscious experience, apperception and its cognitive fields. This concern is the context for, as well as contextualised by the unconscious conditions. The issue of latency was crucial because it explained how discrete experiences of pleasure and pain through iteration formed habits. In fact, one reasonable translation of Sankara could be translated as habit formations. In other words, action, karma, was understood as a designatory label for the process of pleasure-pain conditioning. That which gives me pleasure, I wish to experience again, raga. While that which causes pain, I wish to cons constantly and consistently avoid. Hence, my behavioural actions arise from what I do positively or negatively to reiterate pleasure and pain. Thus, my ethics, perhaps, also. As this shapes my action, karma, it is referred to as tanha, craving, desire, or, as we all know, literally thirst. As we've seen so far, Vedan takes its place within the cognitive chain as described in the Madhupindika Silta Sutta and how this together with Pasa constitute the basic conditions for mental proliferation. Let us just now briefly examine tanha, desire or craving in this context, and particularly the context of dependent arising. In every version of this description of how entrapment within cycles of repetition occur, Desire is seen, is seen to be that which arises upon touch and feeling tone. Although these two are seen, uh, are seen as two separate links in the unfolding of the chain of dependent arising, these two really form a complex which have their roots in the conditioning of avidya, ignorance, and the habit formation, sankhara. Primaphasi, tanha, and the consequences of tanha, Upadana, grasping, attachment, bhava, becoming, appear to follow from Vedana with a deterministic inevitability that leaves little room for ethical behaviour. One of the earliest formulations appears in the Atagavaga of the Suttanipata. In what are founded pleasant and unpleasant? What would not have to be for them not to exist? In stimulation, pleasant and unpleasant are founded. In the absence of stimulation, they do not appear. Becoming and non-becoming also become, come from this source. They are founded in the pleasant and the unpleasant. Stimulation is conditioned by name and form, founded in desire are possessions. In the absence of desire, there is no sense of mindness. In the early formulation of the Suttanapata, we see the Buddha beginning to work out what becomes the more commonly known 12-link explanation of dependent arising. It's worth noting, however, that not even in the Mahanadana Sutta do we find 12 links. Tantra literally thirst can be seen as an incessant and recurrent drive, 
hence craving as its usual translation. All ancient Indian thinkers agreed that one of the principal roots of human distress and unhappiness was tanha. On this, there is very little deviation. But the Buddha provided the most radical diagnosis of this drive and closely examined factors antecedent to its arising. He diagnoses tanha empirically as a psychic ailment dependent on conditions. In his diagnosis, tanha is a repetition compulsion. The self or ego is not conceived as a subject of craving. Craving actually engenders it. There, where there is craving, there is ego consciousness. And where there is tanha, there is perpetual reinforcement of the delusion of a fixed self. Tanha not only reinforces this delusion, but also produces reactions of attraction, revulsion, and cupidity and aversion. The Buddha's analysis of the human condition is that of the pathology of desire and all of the ramifications of that pathology. As one of the Nidana's links in the Paticca formula, Tanha arises as conditioned by Vedana, with Tanha acting as the primary conditioning factor for the arising of attachment, Upadana. However, we may begin to discern a problem here. Whilst it's indeed true that many feeling tones can be seen to be directly linked to Tanha, is this true of all feeling tones? In the usual explanation of these two links, it is fairly clear that a kusala, unwholesome action, karma, sensuous desire, bhava, desire for being, and vibhava, desire for non-being, derive from our sensory contact and the feelings arising from this impingement. It's also claimed that the linkage between feeling tone and craving stroke desire can be broken, thus undermining the apparent deterministic character of this description. Nevertheless, it could be argued that some feelings lead to reactions other than craving and desire. Whilst a pleasant feeling might result in the craving or desiring, unpleasant feeling is more likely to occasion aversion to something rather than craving for it. In the Chachaka Sutta, we find this being claimed. When one is touched by painful feeling, if one sorrows and grieves and laments, weeping, beating one's breast and becomes distraught, then the underlying tendency to aversion lies within oneself. It's fairly obvious how pleasant feelings give rise to karma-tanha, sensuous desire. But what of unpleasant feeling? Perhaps the best way of understanding this is to view it as a species of vibhava-tanha, craving for non-being. Whilst we might not at the conscious level recognize a craving for non-being or non-existence, we, we might recognize a craving um, sorry, let me say that again. Whilst we might not at a conscious level recognize a craving for non-being, it would be useful to see within the Bhava Tanha notions such as the desire to avoid things we dislike or find difficult, the craving to be free of painful and distressing circumstances. Craving may be excited by stimuli either in the form of the somatic factors or sensory stimuli, but its roots are of a deep-seated psychological nature. When, for example, one is under the spell of sensory gratification, one can never get out of the vicious cycle of want, tension, and satisfaction. The word tanha is implied by the metaphor of thirst with which it is associated implies a constant state of striving. In spite of intermittent states of satisfaction, the unquenchable thirst re-emerges. When frustration sets in, there is disappointment and anger, and if society lays down taboos, there is a retreat into the realms of fantasy. But deeper than all these ramifications of the drive for pleasure is the sense of boredom and ennui that are, overcomes the person who has succumbed to the search for pleasure as their one dominating goal. I think Baudelaire crystallizes this with painful honesty in the opening of the Fleur du Mal. We grab every passing thrill with zest and suck them hard like dried up oranges. Ennui daydreaming of the scaffold, grows misty-eyed, a hooker in his fist. Reader, you know this dainty monster too. Hypocrite reader, my fellow man, my twin. Pleasures also contain within them the seeds of decay and loss, and thus within the incessant search for pleasure, delight turns into melancholy. The deeper psychological aspects of melancholy, boredom, dissatisfaction, and restlessness are all contained within the notion of dukkha. 
The psychology of Vedana, Tantra, Upadana cannot be separated from the concept of Dukkha. Let us just turn now to another facet of craving dependent on Vedana, the instinct for self-preservation, Bhavatanha. This second aspect of craving is not, a separ is not separate from Kamma-Tanha. It involves greed and generates the desire to gratify the senses through Kamaraga. The desires of the ego can be analyzed in terms of the craving, craving for self-preservation. The craving for diverse selfish pursuits is embedded in the beliefs and ideological components referred to under the blanket dogma of personal immortality. There is a tendency to the belief in a pure and unchanging ego or self existing independently of the psychophysiological processes that constitute life. This pure self or ego is sometimes believed to survive post-mortem. This erroneous conception of the self is induced by craving, manifesting itself in the, in the linguistic form, this is mine. Conceit manifesting itself in the linguistic form, this I am. And false views in the form of this is myself. Views, craving and conceits can emerge in relation to body, feeling tones, perception, stroke recognition, habitual formations and consciousness. From this process of the mutual nourishment of the intellectual and affective roots of egocentricity emerge the diverse manifestations of egoistic behavior, the desire for self-preservation, self-continuity, self-assertion, power, fame, self-display, and I could give a further number of things on this list. The Bhavatanha, the tendency towards self-annihilation emerges in aggressive behavioral tendencies. Painful feeling tones, Vedana, excite dormant or latent hatred. This is a reactive pattern, and when anger, for example, is not vented on objects, persons or situations in the external world, then it gets reflected towards oneself. From this perspective, the deluded and confused person, when attracted by pleasant objects, hankers after them and is flattered by success. But when touched by painful stimuli, and pain and failure, they become infuriated, aggressive or dejected and depressed. When violent methods of ridding themselves of unpleasant stimuli fail, the venom is directed towards themselves. The word verbava, I think, needs careful handling, for its meaning is more complex than either of the other two terms, kamma or bhava. The word is found in the Pali discourse of the Buddha generally has two meanings. The first, power, health, prosperity, and success. The second, non-existence, cessation of life, and annihilation. The meaning of the phrase Vibhavatana, one, may be rendered as craving for power and success based on the idea that there is no consequences to action and no future state. This meaning, however, doesn't fit in with some of the crucial contexts given in the suttas. Nevertheless, these meanings do not need to be taken as mutually exclusive, as a self-indulgent hedonist may be attempting to annihilate the pain and vicissitudes of life through their pleasure-seeking, a way perhaps of seeking death in life. If this doesn't succeed, then the logical solution, and the most obviously um, severe one, to one's predicament may appear to be suicide. The feeling of itself, of course, does not inevitably have to lead, as in the more deterministic readings of Paticca Samupada, to any of the forms of tana, tanha delineated, for the feeling tone is not identical with the craving or desire. It is at this point we see the use of meditation as a strategy to distinguish between the feeling tone and the resultant form of tanha. The preceding links from ignorance to the sense bases of the chain of Paticca Samuppada, however, remain at a fairly high level of abstraction when compared to the immediacy of sensory interaction and reactive behavior based on sensory impingement. This can be seen as a critical stage in the process when pasa, touch, contact, stimulation occurs in relation to one or more of the six sense bases, we have an incoming sensory occurrence even if from the non-rupa sense base of, of mind. <clears throat> what is generated within the individual at this stage is Vedana. It is this that acts as a condition for the arising of Tanha. 
This makes clear that it's how the individual reacts to tanha that is crucial. And we have to be cautious about seeing Vedana as leading of necessity to tanha. Vedana is not the cause of tanha, and still less is tanha the necessary consequence of Vedana. There is the opportunity for the individual to step aside from habitual reactive patterns to prevent reactivity from leading to upadana, attachment from the grasping and find a means of responding to sensory impingement that does not lead to attached states of mind towards the objects of experience. If unchecked, then the habitual, this habitual reactiveness inevitably leads to a hardening of the patterns and of the behaviours associated with them. In both of the models we've looked at, the cognitive chain outlined in the Madhupindaka Sutta and the teaching of the teacher Samupada, we have seen that when habitual reactive patterns are left unexamined, they take on ethical character and as a consequence start to form the life of the individual. Repeated enactment, including in the mental realm, including the mental realm, strengthen propensities to papancha or craving, clinging and becoming, if we take the Patichasamupada formula. Upadana can be described loosely as the soulmate of Tonha. The word upadana has a dual connotation, that which inflames tanha and that which tanha consumes or clings to. It is everything by which the process of tanha is kept going. It's the fuel, the supply, the provision, the base, the substratum and the foothold. Upadana is conceived as a recurring disease which perverts all the senses. Once the sense of self or ego consciousness has arisen, then sense experience is overdetermined by a reactive responses of cupidity, aversion, or indifference. Associated with upadana is upadi. Even though its etymological derivation is different, upadi has two distinct shades of meaning. It can mean foundation, basis, ground, substratum, or support. As a secondary canonical usage, it can refer to possessions, wife, children, flocks, herds, gold, silver, etc. These are things which one relies on as supports in life, and perhaps the word assets would do justice to them. Upadi covers the whole gamut of footholds or assets which culture provides for measuring self-identity, for measuring gender, nationality, ethnicity, rank, occupation, power, wealth, and status symbols. Clinging, however, is an instinctive reaction. A newborn baby will wrap its fingers around any object that touches its palm or push it away if the external stimulus is experienced as painful. Attraction and repulsion are infantile imprints, which in the adult are transmuted into cupidity, aversion, love and hatred. Marx in Das Kapital reflected on the way the senses become perverted and dehumanized when the ego self arises. He has this, I think it's very pertinent. Property is made us so stupid and one-sided that an object is ours only when it exists for us as capital, or it is directly possessed, eaten, drunk, worn, inhabited, in short, when it's used by us. In the place of the physical and mental senses that has therefore come the sheer estrangement of all these senses, the sense of having. The human being had to be reduced to this absolute poverty in order that he might yield his inner wealth to the outer world. This sense of proprietorship that Marx speaks of begins with the illusion of thinghood. The perceived form is conceived in terms of a hidden essence vested with significance named as such and processed in terms of one's desires or antipathies. These are clung to. The triggering mechanisms Tanha and Upadana produce and continually, continually reproduce fictions with its attendant Dukkha. The world lacks and hankers. Beings are the slaves of craving. Uh, tanha dasa, dasa. For the Buddha, the real dasas the social underclass are not actually a social underclass, but those who are the slaves of Tamha. Nevertheless, the individual is caught in a web of craving constituted by the societies in which they dwell. Both ethical choices and characters are not simply the fiat of the individual, but are molded by social and collective mores. 
Yet a society itself is fashioned by the confusion, confusion and delusion of individual minds, often the most powerful. Both individual and society, however, cannot be viewed separately, but are mutually conditioning conditioned relationships. Individuals are not autonomous actors that unilaterally determine society. They're as much products as producers of culture. As the Buddha puts it in the Suttanapata, there is a sickness within and a sickness without. Within and without underscore the interweaving of social and psychological pro processes and demolishes the average person's perception of himself or herself as an isolated fortress. From the Buddha's perspective, cupidity, aversion, delusion are forms of tanha, a web we repeatedly weave together and in which we are all caught up. The Buddha even described one of his own disciples, Sati, the son of a fisherman, as being caught up in a vast net of craving, in a tangle of craving. Emotional conflicts and tensions rooted as they are in conditioned Vedana reflect the conflicting claims that society makes on the individual. The expectations it raises and frustrates. The system can inflame Tanha only by continuously creating dissatisfaction with what one is. To make people slaves of Tanha, they must be made to feel inadequate, guilty before the all-seeing eye of the other, the dominant culture and its demands. Cravings have become cemented into all forms of social structures and institutions. They reward and encourage greed, selfishness and exploitation rather than friendliness, compassion, and generosity. The Buddha denounced the tyranny within us that makes us the slaves of desire. The self's yearning, and one might say burning, for infinite satisfaction is the within of the same economy of tanha. The societal structures of desire and craving kindle its fire and then offer straw to keep it alive. The need for straw, of course, is infinite because straw burns extremely rapidly. Just a few including remarks. An individual's character is formed by an intense dialectic, dialectic between a society's mores and their own individual behavior. The more the relationship between the two go unexamined, the more the individual is played out by their societal conditioning and is enthralled to their individuated likes and dislikes. That are also conditioned by factors to which that individual apparently has no access. To overcome this, there needs to be a deep investigation and noticing of those likes and dislikes. When these are investigated, they can be seen to be rooted in Vedana and manifest as Tanha and the emotional upheavals which are linked to Tanha Upadana. If these remain unexamined, then the individual becomes a slave to those primary but ultimately blind and unconscious forces, and these truly are a sickness unto death. The end. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry about what. I'm sorry, that was rather longer than I expected. So, uh, thank you very much. And I must say, I let uh, uh, John speak for an hour because we won't have him with us. Nobody else will be able to do that. <laughs> and so now. Yeah, 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 sure. It's going to respond to questions. We'll see if it works. Okay. We're going to have you a few questions and we see if you can respond. And okay. we're going to try to make it so that you can see who speaks, but it might not work. And he's okay. very keen here. Very keen, right. Um, hi, hi, John. I, I'm uh, Robert Buswell from UCLA. Hi. I, uh, I... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.